nervous systems uh, issues in the transmit or generates and transmits impulses, communication to control many things and the muscles simply respond to that uh, stimulation uh, to produce movement so we were talking about uh, the way our brain processes signals yes? oh I'm sorry I need a co-pilot. Thank you. And we were talking about the action potentials, the graded potentials, the differences between them. Graded potentials occur normally in the dendrites, in the sum of the neuron, can be excitatory or inhibitory. Remember this decision-making process. Okay, we have. Uh, Always try to, because these are very abstract concepts, so try to use analogies from real life. Remember the example of a restaurant? There are good things or bad things about this restaurant. Okay, the price, the, the menu, the type of food, the people, the music, temperature. So you put the pros and cons and then you take a decision depending on what is uh, or what prevails. Sometimes there is one thing that is so strong that makes you take a decision, like for example the price. Get to a place and it's very expensive, doesn't matter how good things are there. Okay, it's great. Oh, the Ferrari is great, but they can't afford it. So I'm not going to buy it. Okay, one simple fact will make you take a decision because it's very strong. And that is what the, the neurons do, they summate all of these excitatory and inhibitory stimuli and they decide if firing or not an action protection. So we were talking about ions, okay, how the membrane potential is established, okay, how, uh, for example, a change in the concentration of sodium, potassium may lead to depolarization or hyperpolarization. So we're going to be talking today about these channels to see uh, the different types of channels that exist. For example, there are lead channels. These are always open. Normally, the neurons have more potassium channels than sodium channels of this type. So there is more potassium leaking out than sodium leaking in. That's why we have always the inner part of the membrane more negative. Because we have more positive charges going out than positive charges entering into the neuron. We have other type of channels that are called ligand-gated. For example, channels to which acetylcholine or other neurotransmitters bind. Okay, they are going to be closed all the time, but when the neurotransmitter binds to the binding site, they are going to open and they are going to let sodium or any other ion to move through. Then we have other type of channels, which are uh, channels that respond to changes in voltage. These are the ones that exist in the axon. The axon hillock has a very high concentration of this type of channels. They are measuring the voltage of the neuron. Okay, when we summate all of these excitatory and inhibitory potentials okay, in the dendrites, if the membrane potential reaches 55 or minus 55 which is threshold in that moment the voltage gated sodium channels in the axon hillock will open sodium will enter 
and we are going to start uh, seeing the action potential in the action. Okay? There are many of these voltage-gated channels in every node of Rambier in the neurons. Okay? And that's why once we open okay, some of these voltage-gated channels in the axon hillock, that will create a depolarization that will be changing the membrane potential across the axon, along the axon, and will start opening other uh, voltage-gated sodium channels okay, along all the way of the axon. We have some of these also in the axonal end. Okay, when the action potential reaches the axonal end, there are also voltage-gated calcium channels in this case that will let calcium enter and that will, to the, will lead to the release of the neurotransmitters in the synaptic space. So this uh, open or closed depending on the voltage inside of the neuron. And also we have the mechanically gated. Okay, these are going to be, uh, in some cases, uh, open or closed depending on what cell we are talking about. And they are going to respond to changes in the structure of the cell. For example, pressure. Mechanoreceptors, for example, okay, they are going to respond to pressure. Okay, the deformation of the cell membrane, either if you stretch it or you don't stretch it, is going to determine that they may open or close. Sometimes, for example, you have heard uh, if the cells are placed in a hypertonic solution, okay, the cells uh, are going to change their volume. Okay, water is going to go out, so the cells are going to shrink. If they are in a hypotonic solution, the contrary. Water goes in and they swell. But this shrinking and swelling produces also changes in the cell membrane that will lead to opening or closing of these channels. And this is, for example, how the first mechanism works. After we eat, for example, a pepperoni pizza or something that is very salty, the osmolality of our blood increases. Okay, that will lead to shrinking of the cells in the first center, osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus, and this shrinking will lead to opening of some channels, and that is going to be the signal to stimulate the release of antidiuretic hormone and stimulate the first mechanism. So these are just some examples of how these channels work, how they, um, uh, and how we can see them in our normal physiology. And here we have the, the summation that we were talking about. Okay, there are two types of summations. Okay, we have, for example, we can stimulate a neuron or inhibit a neuron by simply stimulating it or inhibiting it through different dendrites. That is called a spatial summation. Okay. Different dendrites stimulated or inhibited at the same time. Okay. This type of potentials that occur here in the, uh, in the soma is called excitatory postsynaptic potential because we are increasing the stimulation and all of these stimuli are going to be uh, added up in the action hillock and that will create an action potential. If instead of three neurons you stimulate only one with this frequency, no action potential is going to occur. Now, another way that we have to induce a neuron to fire 
is by simply stimulating one of the dendrites, okay, very frequently, increasing the frequency of the stimulation, okay, in only one of these dendrites is also a mechanism. Okay, high frequency stimulation leads to the summation of, of all of these excitatory post-synaptic potentials and generation of an action potential. Notice that, for example, uh, because here on the left we have simply excitatory signals, but sometimes we may produce an excitatory and, a, and another inhibitory signal of the same magnitude, and simply we don't have anything. Okay? Find a person that you don't like and kill it. Don't kill it. Kill it. Don't kill it. Don't. We don't move. And in the center we have the example of spatial summation. Notice that the summation of the two stimuli okay, makes the membrane potential to reach threshold. And in this case we have the example of the temporal summation, stimulating very fast. So these stimuli add to each other. Something very similar to what happens, for example, in the skeletal muscle. That we can summate the contractions until we reach a tetanus or a maximal contraction. It's the same process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is pathology. Okay. That is a that is a pathological thing. We are going to be talking about a physiological things now, and we're in neuron. In the case of muscle trans, can have different uh, mechanisms, potassium, magnesium, okay. So let's leave that for pathophysiology. So, now, once uh, we have the threshold, okay, once we reach threshold in the neuron, okay, an action potential is going to be generated. This is an all or non phenomenon. This is a a phenomenon that doesn't dissipate as the graded potential that occurs in the receptors or occurs in the dendrites. Okay, is uh, dependent on the activation and inactivation of voltage-gated solving channels. Okay, we are going to be cyclically opening and closing them. We are going to see this in more detail. Okay, and we are going to see something very specific of this voltage-gated solid channels. Okay, they can exist in different stage. For example, this is a very important difference between the ligand-gated channels and the voltage-gated solid channels. Ligand-gated channels may be either open or closed. Okay, the solid channels, the voltage-gated ones, may be open, closed, or maybe inactive. And we are going to see the importance of this inactivation of this type of channel. And well, another thing about the action potentials is that they may travel at different speeds. Okay, the speed of propagation will depend on if the neurons are myelinated or not, and on the diameter of the neurons. Okay, if the neurons don't have myelin, these action potentials are going to travel okay, along the action like millimeter by millimeter. Open, close, open, close, open, close, open, close. 
myelinated neurons uh, have these uh, Schwann cells, and the action potentials are going to occur only in the nodes of Rambier. And this is something that we call saltatory conduction, okay, that normally they represent in the boots, like going outside the neuron, it's going inside. Okay, the current travels inside the action, it doesn't jump outside the neuron. Okay, actually, this myelin is there to prevent that all of this current dissipates. And the diameter of the action, this is, can be compared to our streets or highways. Okay, the larger the diameter, or the wider a street or a highway is, they will uh, permit a higher speed. Okay, there is less resistance to the current. And here we have the sequence of events that you can see better in a diagram. Okay, sometimes when we read things without the diagram, it's very difficult for us to have these abstract concepts. Okay, so this is better understood when we look at the diagram. Okay, this uh, minus 70 here is representing the resting membrane potential. Okay, it's the charge of the inner side of the membrane of the axon. Okay, and when we look at this, always look at the situation of the channels. Okay, notice that when the neuron is at rest, the voltage-gated sodium and potassium channels are both closed. So sodium cannot enter and potassium cannot leave the cells. Also pay attention to this little difference between the sodium and the potassium channel. There is like a little thing there, on the left side, that is not here in the potassium channels. Both these gated sodium channels have a double gating mechanism. They have an outer gate and an inner gate. And they are going to open or close at different voltages. They respond to changes in voltage and they are going to respond differently. We are going to see how it works. Now, if this neuron okay, decides to fire, okay, this is what is going to happen. Okay, how the neurons decide? Well, thresholds, the threshold needs to be reached. When this happens, at this level, minus 55, is when the voltage-gated sodium channels are going to open. Notice that now the two gates are open. Sodium is going into the cells, but uh, the potassium channels are closed. That produces this depolarization, rising phase, that reaches zero and goes above zero to around plus 25, that is called overshoot. Now what happens at this point? when the inner side of the membrane reaches the plus 25. Okay, now we have a change in the, in the state of these uh, sodium channels. Notice that the sodium channel has the inner gate closed. That inner gate will, will close at plus 25. And that is what makes impossible that the inner side of the membrane goes above 25. Now we inactivate the sodium channels. And there is the difference. When the outer gate is closed, we call that, we say that the channel is closed. When the inner gate is closed, doesn't matter that the outer is open, 
Okay, now this channel is inactive. Okay? Now what happens with the potassium channel? The potassium channel opens at this point. Okay, so the plus 25 marks the inactivation of the sodium channels and the opening of the potassium channels. Now there is another difference between the sodium and the potassium channels. The sodium channels open and close very fast. The potassium channels open and close very slowly. Okay, and that has an implication. Notice that the repolarization phase, that is the one that occurs due to the moving of potassium outside the cell, is going to occur more slowly than the depolarization phase. Okay, during all this time of repolarization, potassium is leaving the cells. There is a moment when the inner membrane potential reaches the minus 70, the resting membrane potential, but goes below. And that is something we call after hyperpolarization. Why this occurs? Because at this point, at minus 70, the potassium channels start closing but they do it very slowly. So, minus 70 is the signal, but it takes time, so there is still some potassium moving out, and the inner part of the membrane potential goes below the resting membrane potential. But then, we return to the resting state. These two channels are as they were at the beginning, Okay, and who takes care of the redistribution of the ions in this part? Well, the sodium potassium pump. Okay? You have here all the explanation okay, of this. Now, what is the importance of this inactivation of the sodium channels? When the sodium channels are inactive, it is going to be impossible to trigger a new action potential. Okay, and that will guarantee the accuracy of the transmission of information in the nervous system. If a neuron wants to fire at a certain rate, it will do it. And of course, the action potential is going to travel only in one direction, and it's not going to go backwards. Okay, the depolarization of the inner membrane will only open the sodium channels that are ahead of it because the ones that are behind are inactive. Okay, so it's going to be impossible to open them. Remember the outer gate okay, is going to open when the cell reaches the threshold. If any stimulus reaches threshold at this point, it doesn't matter because the outer door is already open, but the inner is going to be closed. Okay, when is, uh, is this, this inner gate going to open again? After the hyperpolarization ends. Okay, in all of this period, when the resting membrane potential is below minus 70, these channels are going to remain inactive. When it returns to resting membrane potential, it goes back to the normal resting state. It's complicated, okay, but it's something that you're going to get.
So we have here an explanation of this double gating mechanism. Okay, they are closed. Okay. Okay, the cell reaches threshold. You can add it to one. Okay. Threshold minus 55. Okay, that means they are gonna open the outer gate. Sodium goes in. Okay. When the cell reaches the plus 25, this is gonna close. It's another voltage. And they're not gonna open again until okay, the cell is uh, in the resting membrane protection. And this diagram simply is explaining what we were saying before about the difference okay, between the speed of transmission in the unmyelinated fibers and the myelinated ones. Okay, so when we want to understand this, uh, they give you, for example, this uh, example. Okay, the conduction in the myelinated neurons is like taking normal steps when we are walking. Okay, transmission in the unmyelinated is like walking heel to toe. We can have an idea of the difference in the speed. Notice there, in mammals, the velocity ranges from 3 to 120 okay, uh, meters per second in myelinated axons compared to unmyelinated ones. 0.5 to 2 okay, meters per second. And then we have the, the role of these uh, myelin, the Schwann cells. Okay, Schwann cells are a type of glial cell. Okay, in every action there are going to be thousands of these glial cells. When we are born, okay, we have the action and we have maybe two or three layers of, of myelin there. Okay, imagine a cell, when I studied this for the first time, I imagine a wire and I, you put like a fried egg on top and you try to wrap the, the wire with the fried egg. It's the nucleus and the cytoplasm. And then with time, okay, this cell becomes larger and larger and wraps and wraps around, around forming many, many layers of myelin. It's like making more cytoplasm, more cytoplasm. And we reach the peak of these layers, the number of layers, when we are teenagers. Okay, that's why, for example, if you try, there are some exceptions to these rules, of course, but if you take a three-year-old kid, their movements are not gonna be very accurate, they are not gonna be very sharp. They need to be trained. And when we are 11, 12, 13-year-old, we start doing chapter, uh, chapter movements, so we can start practicing, practicing some types of sports that require this, uh, accuracy in the movements. Over time, we might use some of these uh, myelin cells and we start become, uh, becoming a little bit complicated to, to do anything until someone has to help us to do anything for that. Okay? And well, we are going to be talking about how cells communicate we have a little bit of this here and also in the next presentation. Um, it's important to understand how the neurotransmission occurs. If I have to choose one topic, 
of the neurophysiology that we've been talking about, this is the one that I would choose. My, I don't have time. I only have 10 minutes to study for the test. That's the most important thing. Okay, how the neurotransmission occurs. Okay, we're going to be studying the neuromuscular junction. Okay, there is a synapsis between neurons and different effector organs in the body, muscles, and the majority of them, or endocrine, exocrine glands too. And this neuromuscular junction is composed of uh, the presynaptic bottom, that is called the motor nerve terminus, different names. And we have some neurotransmitters that we are going to be studying in more detail. The example, the most common example is acetylcholine. And then we have a postsynaptic muscle end plate. Okay, all these things are the components of the neuromuscular junction. Okay, there are more things there, but we're going to the basics now. Now, what is the sequence of events here? Remember, we have this action potential, reaches the axon end, voltage-gated calcium channels open, calcium enters, produces a depolarization there. This increase in intracellular calcium will activate a series of very complex mechanisms okay, that will end with the release of acetylcholine by exocytosis. Okay, we need there several things. Okay? There are some proteins that need to be working perfectly that we call docking proteins. We don't want to enter into biochemistry, but it's important to know that this is not as easy as it looks like. Okay, acetylcholine is stored in vesicles. Now, when calcium increases, the vesicles simply don't go there. Okay, there are some proteins that are activated that will take the vesicles and dock it okay, to the membrane of the axonal end, will induce the fusion of the membrane, and will release the acetylcholine into the synaptic tract. Now, when acetylcholine is released, it will travel by diffusion in the synaptic tract and it's going to uh, bind to the receptors in the postsynaptic end plate. And that process is not easy at all. Okay, there are some other proteins in the postsynaptic membrane that need to gather the acetylcholine neurotransmitters and place them in the membrane. And there are some diseases that we are going to be studying in pathophysiology. That, you are, that have to do with malfunction of these proteins, or simply that we develop antibodies against them. When acetylcholine binds there, we have an example of one of the ligand-gated uh, sodium channels that will open okay, because of the binding of this uh, acetylcholine. Sodium is going to enter into the cells, will depolarize the cell, we have the transmission of this uh, depolarization okay, in the muscle cell. We'll enter the detubules, we'll activate the contraction mechanism by opening other type of channels. In this case, are uh, calcium channels okay, that will release calcium inside the cytoplasm of the muscle cell and will lead to the muscle contraction. Now, what happens with acetylcholine? We don't want acetylcholine there activating the muscle all the time. Okay, it's going to be removed from the receptor. 
and it's going to be hydrolyzed, broken down, degraded by an enzyme that is called acetylcholinesterase. Okay, this uh, acetylcholine, okay, the acetyl part is going to dissipate, it's converted into something like vinegar, and the choline is going to be taken back into the synapses for recycling. Okay, it's going to be reuptaken to make more acetylcholine. There you have it, okay, in a diagram. Okay, this circle here is representing the recycling of the acetylcholine. Okay, these are the voltage-gated calcium channels. Action potential opens them. Release of neurotransmitter binding to the receptors on the other side. It's going to lead to the opening of the sodium channels in the postsynaptic membrane. And then we reuptake them. Now, we were talking about neuromodulation. Okay. Sometimes, um, notice that in this case we are not uh, representing a muscle in the postsynaptic membrane. We are representing like two neurons, but could be anything. Any case of uh, synapsis, this may occur. Sometimes the neurotransmitters in general remain in the synapsis and we don't reuptake them, okay, or we don't uh, reabsorb them, or they are not broken down. And this is because of the action of neuromodulators. Sometimes they may stay in the cerebrospinal fluid and not in the synapses. And this is something that we know as a result of many studies. Okay, and for example, in the treatment of anxiety, depression, the theory in the past about uh, anxiety, depression, and some other of these disorders was that there was an imbalance in serotonin or dopamine, etc. Okay, they created several medications to try to reestablish the balance of something that they didn't understand very well. And now they have discovered that serotonin and dopamine are not the most important neurotransmitter in the pathogenesis of anxiety depression, but we have to work on them because they simply act as neuromodulators. Okay, in, the, in the brain, for example, the most important stimulating neurotransmitter is glutamate. And then we have GABA, which is an inhibitor. Okay, so either excess GABA will produce inhibition of the neural functions, or a deficiency of glutamate will also produce inhibition of these, uh, of these functions. So in every patient, the mechanism will be different, and that's why sometimes we have to work with different medications, because we simply can't take a biopsy of the brain. Well, let me see in your case, what is the cause? We have to simply give a medication and see what happens. If it doesn't work, we have to either increase the dose or change some, another medication until by trial and error, we get to the correct treatment. They simply make the, the neurotransmitters to stay where they have to be. Normally, you release, let's say, glutamate, and it's going to be liberated by glial cells. Serotonin, dopamine, they are going to make the glutamine stay there. Okay, they are going to 
to this potentiation. And not only medication, because you can increase serotonin or you can increase dopamine, which are neuromodulators, but neurons have some mechanisms of defense against this. Increase dopamine artificially or serotonin artificially, and they're going to reduce the number of receptors for these uh, neurotransmitters, process known as down-regulation. So there are other ways in which we can act on these neuromodulators, and that's psychotherapy. Okay, psychotherapy also okay, produces a regulation of these neuromodulators. So normally what the idea is to work with medication and psychotherapy okay, with the patients. Do you have examples of the inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmitters? Inhibitory ones, GABA, dopamine, serotonin. Notice that dopamine may be here or here. It okay, can be either inhibitory or excitatory depending on the rest of the conditions. Then we have the most important excitatory, acetylcholine and glutamate. Notice that I put some in bold letters. These are the ones that you really have to pay more attention to now. And then we have others that we are going to be mentioning in the future. Now let's take a look at the circuits, synapses. I was looking uh, the other day uh, about reading something about neural connections. The more I read about it, the less I understand. It's complicated. I found this. This is uh, an interesting image. Okay, there are like, every book says something different, no? But this last book that I read, uh, that there are 85 billion neurons in the brain. Each of them has a thousand connections, and they gave a number of possible connections, 500 billion, something like that. Okay, and they were, they were comparing the brain this, this on the left here is, a, is the internet map. Okay, they were comparing the nervous system or saying that it was like a biological internet. Okay, mining all the computers of the world together, okay, communicating with each other in some way through different nodes or servers, etc. Okay, they were saying that uh, the brain works in the same way. Okay. On the right side, you have a picture, very old, as you can see, of one of the neurons, the pyramidal neuron. Notice the body of the neuron here. Okay, these are in our brain cortex. Notice how many dendrites. Okay, that go up. All of this is what forms the gray matter. Notice how many dendrites, and they are making connections with other neurons. And as I said, the more you read about it, the less clear it becomes. This is something that they used to compare these pyramidal neurons to the tree of life. Interesting. And this is one of the first ideas of the nervous system. They try to understand how the brain works. Mundus intellectualis. Mundus imaginabilis. Lights, memory visions, mundus sensibilis, tactile, visual auditories. Mind this many years ago, we were trying to make sense of how the mind works. 
This is reverberating systems exist not only in the respiration, also in the limbic system, maybe involved in epilepsy, and in some emotions, for example, uh, reverberating ideas. Someone is trying to kill me. Remembering a song or over, over and over again. Being three hours with the same song in my head. Or worries, concerns about different things. We have here some diagrams, okay, representing the convergent. Let's say this is measuring the pH, the CO2, this is measuring the stretch of the lungs, this is measuring oxygen. And this one takes the decision. This is the divergent. A motor neuron stimulating several muscle fibers. This is the reverberating. Okay. The decision is taken. 10 times per minute. Yeah, I don't need to tell you that all the time. So the signal goes back, goes back. So we don't use too much energy in regulating this uh, basic respiratory rate. And this is the parallel after discharge. Okay? Notice that here we have a neuron, it's in yellow here, that is sending information through three different pathways which are parallel. Okay? One contains four neurons before reaching the, the target. One doesn't contain any, one is direct, direct, and the other contains only two. So the information will travel at different speeds. Okay, point zero zero five, zero zero one, zero zero three seconds. Okay? So the target neuron is going to receive the information at different moments. Okay, this is uh, the best example of what this is for is blinking. Okay? Sometimes we blink and we don't realize that we are blinking. Okay? And if you look at the light and you close your eyes, you're going to still see some shape of the light, etc. These things that we do sometimes using games or different things. And that is a survival mechanism. Okay, mine, we are in the wild, and there is a predator, an enemy with a gun, with a sword, etc. We blink and we lose the idea of where we are in the life at the moment. Okay, just one example of what this means and what this is for. And well, you have there some resources. There is a video from Osmosis. 10 minutes, you can watch later. Oh, um, that's it. Okay, let's have a break until 10 or 10. Do you have any questions before going to the break? Hmm? Okay, let's go to break. We simply are going to go to the things that are new. So we're going to try to understand how muscles work, how they respond to stimuli. So what happens after this uh, acetylcholine or any other neurotransmitter is released and binds to the receptors there. 
So the muscles are the most important effectors in our body and almost everything that we do or everything that the brain or central nervous system, endocrine system activate, okay, will produce movement of some type. Okay, the primary action of any type of muscle is to contract or shorten, produce force, but remember this can be produced without any kind of shortening. We are going to see the different types of muscle contraction that exist. And sometimes the muscles uh, do their work by lengthening. Okay, simply compare what we do when we are lifting an object, you are picking up your phone, so we are shortening a muscle, biceps in this case. At the same time we are lengthening okay, the triceps. There are muscles that are agonistic and antagonistic muscles that also have to be controlled. Okay, and we want to hold something. Okay, we are not shortening anything. We are simply maintaining attention. And we are going to put an object on the floor. Okay, we need to maintain the muscle contracted with tension, but the muscle is lengthening. So the function of the muscles vary. So in physiology, uh, the word contract okay, is not a very commonly used. We are going to be using muscle contraction, of course. But in physiology, we prefer the word activate. Muscles are activate. To include everything. Shortening, lengthening, or simply maintaining the tension okay, without any change in the length of the muscle. So we use the muscles for movement, walking, any kind of movement, for speaking, for looking at different places, swallowing, there are different, almost everything that we do in the body. This is a list that is very short. We could be talking about what the muscles do forever. Okay, protection of the organs, many vital organs are not protected by bone. Simply think, for example, in the muscles of the neck, muscles of the, uh, the organs in the abdomen. Okay, we use them for breathing. Okay, diaphragm and other muscles of the respiration, different internal organs, viscerae, heart, bladder, uterus, movement of food, motility, controlling the blood pressure, the distribution of the blood. We have many sphincters okay, that control where the blood goes. If we are just, just had lungs and we are sitting at home, we are going to have open all these sphincters that go to the GI tract to perform digestion to the liver, etc. But if suddenly we have to an emergency, okay, we have to start running away. We are going to close all those sphincters and we are going to open those that send blood to the muscles. Okay, and also participate in production of heat, thermogenesis. Okay, we are going to be seeing some of these functions. And there you have basically the distinction between the three types of muscles that we have. Skeletal muscle on the top left. Skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle on the top left. It's a type of striated muscle, voluntary. Okay, that has uh, the most important distinction with other types of muscles is uh, the length of the fiber. Fibers in the muscles, for example, in, in mind the quadriceps. Okay, these uh, fibers go from one end to another, so these are very long cells. 
and they have these uh, microtubules, they have these uh, myofibrils, which are special organelles that are present only in the striated muscles. And these myofibrils, myofibrils contain many sarcomeres in series, they are placed in series. Okay, while the myofibrils are placed in parallel, okay, all of these participating in making sure we have a proper contraction or shortening or elongation of the fiber. Have many mitochondria, they produce ATP, have some lipids, some glycogen, many different things there. More histology, so we are not going to enter into too much detail about these uh, microscopic things. Remember, physiology has more to do with the extracellular fluid regulation rather than with some of these, uh, uh, these microscopic or cellular biology things. However, we need to study how some processes occur inside the cells, and that's what we are going to be seeing today. In the case of the cardiac muscle, it's very similar to the skeletal. Okay, regarding the presence of these myofibrils and sarcomeres, etc. But there are differences. Okay, the skeletal muscle fiber is a branching fiber and has these intercalated discs with many gap junctions to guarantee that the heart contracts as a unit. They guarantee the proper contraction of the heart. And then we have the smooth muscle. Okay, very small fibers. Okay, smooth, it doesn't have these striations. It doesn't have this uh, configuration of the myofibrils and sarcomeres. It has sarcomeres, but they are in a different uh, configuration. So when we see them under the microscope, we don't see the, the classic stri that we see in the skeletal and cardiac fibers. There you have, uh, on the nose, you have a lot of information okay, about this you want to go deeper, but this is something that you have studied so many times. Now, remember every process that happens in our brain, okay, every time we activate a neuron, that neuron is going to produce a contraction of a muscle, not always perceived as movement, or the activation, not always perceived as movement. Remember the example I was giving you the other day, that if you start thinking, or reading in your mind something and you bite your tongue, you are going to notice the difference in how you think. Okay? It's like if you really were talking out loud while biting your tongue. You're going to perceive the difference. That means that when we are thinking out loud in our minds, the tongue is stimulated as if it was, as if it were really talking and moving. So, to produce any kind of movement, let's take an example. We are in a place and we have two choices. We put these ice creams there. It could be anything. Okay, you want to go into one direction or into another. We are going to consider different situations. Okay, we are going to gather visual information, auditory, smell. Uh, we are going to associate all of these things with our information that is stored in our memory. Okay, for this, we have the participation of the limbic system, we have the hippocampus, all of these uh, emotional uh, and decision-making structures. And before initiating any movement, let's say you have to move to the left or to the right, 
grab something. First of all, we need to know the position of our body. Okay, we cannot initiate a movement or control a movement properly without knowing where we are. For this, we have many receptors in our muscles, tendons, etc., and joints that inform the brain about the position of the different joints, limbs, etc. These are proprioceptors that you are going to be testing and you are going to be learning how to do this in physical examination. So this information has to enter from sensory receptors okay, to the brain or this has to be integrated. The brain cortex okay, is the one that will process, evaluate the options, okay, gathering all of this information and also will decide the timing because maybe I like more the chocolate ice cream, but maybe this is not the moment to move. And we then give the order to execute these movements. Okay, all of these are all of these neurons talking to each other. All of this occurs in this area. Okay, we have the uh, primary motor cortex, that is the one that ultimately will send information to the muscles. Okay, we have a areas of the cortex that help in this, the premotor cortex, okay, the, uh, this is called supplementary okay, motor area okay, that will talk to other areas in the sensory cortex, that is the one that is gathering the proprioception information, for example, but together with the visual cortex, auditory, etc. Okay, so the output is going to be sent Okay, from the motor cortex to the muscles. Okay, but this is uh, it's not just simply a signal that travels directly. All of this uh, pathway of the motor output is going to integrate the order to move a muscle with the information from the cerebellum, from the basal ganglia, and other structures that are subcortical structures. Cerebellum is one of the most important structures that participates in this because Cerebellum is the one that says, okay, which are the steps that I have to take, okay, how fast I have to travel, what is the strength, what is it? So permits to make coordinated and accurate movements, because it's not just moving the legs. Okay, it's balancing the body, okay, swinging the arms, it's looking in the proper direction when we are walking. So this is a very complicated process that we wake up every day and we take for granted that we are going to walk properly to the bathroom or, or to the kitchen. Okay? We knew all the things that participate there and have to work properly. Okay? It's scary sometimes. All this works. Still working after this many years. So we are going to be seeing this. Uh, this is one example of how the sensory information enters to the central nervous system. Okay, this is representing, we have different sensors okay, in the tendons and in the muscle fibers. So we have the muscle spindle, we have the uh, Golgi tendon organ. Okay, these sensors are going to inform the spinal cord and of course the brain about the tension in the muscles, about the degree of stretch of the tendons, so, for example, if you are trying to lift a very heavy weight, okay, and this excessive tension is perceived by this uh, uh, Golgi tendon organ and muscle spindle, 
they, they are going to act to protect the muscle and prevent the rupture of the muscle. They are going to simply stop the muscle contraction and you have to drop the weight. Okay, this is something that is a reflex act. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you will have to stop and drop the weight. Okay, so sensor information enters from different receptors that we have in the tendons, muscles. You notice this green pathway enters through the dorsal root of the spinal nerves. Okay, the cell body of this sensory neuron is here in the dorsal root ganglion. This information is going to enter into the gray matter of the spinal cord. Okay, and it's connected to the alpha motor neuron, the one that directly stimulates the muscles to contract. Excessive tension is detected, this neuron will inhibit the alpha motor neuron, so we stop any kind of muscle contraction. The same happens when, from the tendons or from these muscle spindles. Yeah, we have some pictures about the structure of the muscles, etc., but that is more anatomy than physiology. We are more interested in other stuff. So the muscle contractions, the muscle activation, okay, there are several types. Contractions may be either isotonic or isometric. And for this, simply use medical terminology. Remember, at the same time that you are learning how to treat patients, you are learning a language. And sometimes, simply based on the terminology, you can answer questions. Okay, never, uh, when you're studying, never uh, leave a word okay, without knowing what is the real meaning of that word. For example, isotonic contraction, same tone, same tension. Okay, the tension remains constant depending on the weight of the object we are, we are lifting or depositing on the floor. It will remain constant during all day contraction or elongation, shortening or lengthening of the muscle. Okay, if we develop a force in a muscle okay, that is greater than the load or the weight of the object, of course the muscle will shorten. Okay, if we reduce the force okay, to a level that is lower than the weight of the object, lower than the load, we are able to elongate uh, the muscle. And there you have the examples. Okay, we call this type of contractions concentric shortening. Okay, when we have a dumbbell way up in the biceps curve. And the contrary is the eccentric contraction, okay, in which the muscle lengthens, elongates, dumbbell in the way down. Can be a dumbbell, can be a book, can be a cell phone, can be any object. And then we have the isometric ones. If you want an example of exercise, is for example, the invisible chair is kind of a static exercise, or when we are holding an object in place, there is a tension, but the muscle doesn't shorten or lengthen. These are simply the examples of these types of contractions. Now, for this worker, okay, different events at the neuromuscular junction have to occur. We already explained this before, so we don't have to go over this. There you have the steps. Okay, action potential, okay, voltage-gated calcium channels, release of neurotransmitter, okay, and then the binding of the neurotransmitter okay, on the 
other side, the muscle plate, and then you have the initiation of another action potential in the muscle fiber. And that happens because after the binding of acetylcholine, sodium enters, making the inner side of the membrane less negative, depolarization, and all the events that you know happen in an action potential. What we have to study today is, or in this part, is what we call excitation contraction coupling, okay, the process that permits the communication between the nervous system and the, uh, and the muscles. Okay, these are two processes. One is excitation and the other is contraction. Excitation is simply the electrical event okay, that occurs after the stimulation of the motor, of the muscle fiber by the motor neuron. And then contraction is the actual physical event, okay, the activation of the muscle. And that occurs because of the interaction between these filaments of actin and myosin. Okay, this is a process that has to be very well coupled. Okay, it's converting the electrical stimulus into a mechanical stimulus. It's the transduction okay, of the signals of the nervous system into movement. Okay, and we have here a very good representation of this. Okay, you have here this uh, acetylcholine binding. Notice that the action potential is going to travel through the plasma membrane down the T-tubules. At this point, you see the, uh, an area where the T-tubule is in contact with this blue structure here that is the sarcoplasmic reticulum of the muscle fiber. Sarcoplasmic reticulum normally has lots of calcium inside. Skeletal muscle contraction depends on calcium and only uses intracellular calcium for the contraction. That is an important difference, for example, with the heart and the smooth muscle. Smooth muscle and the heart, they use intra and extracellular calcium for the muscle contraction. That's why we use calcium channel blockers in the heart, okay, to do certain things. So when the action potential gets here, okay, to this area, that will activate okay, the voltage-gated calcium channels. Okay, there are a couple of channels there. And that will lead to the release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum into the cytosol that you see here in this part. Now, when calcium is released, it will bind okay, to troponin. You're going to see this in more detail later. And that will initiate the muscle contraction. And the muscle contraction will be occurring until we remove calcium from the cytoplasm. Okay, while calcium is present there, muscle contraction will occur. How do we remove calcium from there? Well, we need a couple of things. We need that there is no more stimulation of the muscle, because if we continue stimulating the muscle, calcium is going to be continue being released. And also we need ATP, okay, because to remove this calcium and put it back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum, we need to pump it there because it will go from low concentration to high concentration. So we have a calcium pump that is dependent on ATP that we call sarcoplasmic reticulum ATPase or CERCA, S-E-R-C-A. Now the acetylcholine should be removed from there so no more stimulation occurs. 
Okay, calcium must be removed for the muscle to be able to relax. Okay, those are basically the events that happen okay, that explain the excitation and contraction code. Now, what happens after calcium binds to this troponin? Then we have another uh, series of events that normally happen in a cycle, a cycle that we call the cross-bridge cycle. Cross-bridge means the union between actin and myosin. Okay, there is an animation there for you to watch if you want to understand this. And we have to start here. We, you can start at any point. You know, but the start in this place is the moment when we stop when we were explaining the excitation and contraction coupling. Calcium binds to troponin. Okay, troponin is a little protein okay, that is uh, here that is forming a complex with another that is tropomyosin, that is this long protein there. And this complex between troponin and tropomyosin normally is blocking the site where actin and myosin will bind together to contract the muscle. So binding of calcium to troponin will expose okay, the actin binding sites. And when that happens, okay, the myosin head, this thing here that okay, is like little finger or arm okay, that is uh, arising from, the, from myosin, is going to be free to bind okay, to actin. Okay. Calcium binds, tropomyosin is removed, exposing the actin binding site. And you have a complex between myosin, ABP, and phosphate together that will bind to actin. We're going to see where this ADP and phosphate come from when we get to the end. So that is the start. You can start in any place. No? Now, what happens after that? Now, the ADP and the phosphate are going to be released. And when that happens, we are going to have what we call a power stroke. And that simply means this is the this little finger there, which is the myosin head that now is bound to actin, will move. Okay, and all of this is occurring in all of the sarcomeres of the fiber, so we are going to have the shortening of the fiber. That mechanism explains very well contraction or shortening. Now, this mechanism is not very useful to explain the lengthening contractions or the eccentric contractions. But this is what we have up to now. Okay, and that's sadly. Sometimes we we know that we don't know something, but we trust that someone knows. No, they don't know. You have a, a, another field for investigation and research. So that is the power stroke, okay? The movement of these uh, myosin heads. Now, after the power stroke, we are going to have ATP, another ATP molecule that will bind myosin. And this binding of ATP will weaken the bond between actin and myosin. So they will detach. Okay, there is the rupture of the cross bridge and the start of the relaxation phase of the muscle. Now this ATP is going to be hydrolyzed, broken down into ADP and phosphate. Okay, that you see here, you remove a phosphate from, from, from ATP 
and that induces the cocking of the myosin and ADP phosphate complex. So we prepare the muscle for another contraction. Power stroke, okay, release of ADP, binding of ADP, weakens the, the, uh, the junction, and then the hydrolysis of the ATP, cocking position, another, another, another. And that is the crossbreed cycle. Mm -hmm. This is only found in heart muscles? Skeletal muscle, this is found in uh, heart muscle, found in smooth muscle, okay, the three muscles. The difference is in smooth, the actin and myosin are not placed in the sarcomere form. Okay, you are gonna see the picture later, and that's why we don't see it strike. That's why the smooth muscle, the skeletal and cardiac, they simply shorten or lengthen. Smooth muscle, okay, the fibers are placed in different directions, so can contact. The muscle, smooth muscle, is spindle-shaped, but when it contracts, it may look like a post stamp, for example, because many fibers in different directions will like, shrink the stamp. But it's the same interaction between actin and myosin. Uh, I was saying because of the troponin protein, that the troponin comes in part. Uh, different type. There is a this troponin is different, okay, in the heart and in the in the skeletal muscle. Okay, so we look for the specific for the heart. But it's another troponin with a different, maybe a different sequence of amino acids, and we can detect that. Okay. Heart specific troponin, skeletal muscle specific troponin. Now, for all these things, as you imagine, a lot of ATP is needed. Okay, energy. Okay, ATP is needed for contraction, for relaxation of the muscle, to remove uh, calcium from the cytoplasm, to maintain the resting membrane potential of the cell. So ATP is extremely necessary okay, for contraction, relaxation, notice they are the most important parts. The hydrolysis of ATP is the one that provides energy for the power stroke. Okay, the binding of ATP detaches acting from myosin, and the relaxation of the muscle, and also to overcome rigor. Okay, when we die, we develop rigor mortis because of lack of ATP. Simply Actin and myosin remain bound very strongly. And when we overcome this rigor, when the muscle fibers break down as a result of the necrosis and the natural and the denaturalization of these proteins. ATP also to remove calcium and facilitate relaxation. So we have these three systems. One is called the phosphagen system or creatine phosphate system. Okay, this is the one that allows us to have some ATP stored that we use quickly. Um, a glycogen lactic acid or glycolytic system or glycolysis and the aerobic or oxidative phosphorylation that is dependent on oxygen. Okay, that is the one that normally we perform in the mitochondria. So only cells that have mitochondria will perform this. For example, red blood cells don't have a aerobic respiration, they only perform glycolysis. Now you have the explanation of these uh, systems. Creatine phosphate is the one that allows storage of some ATP. 
okay, provides energy for a very short time. Okay, the, the, that is like a, this molecule, creatine phosphate, is creatine plus a phosphate. So every time you break down an ATP and form ADP, we can use the phosphate from creatine and bind it to the ADP to form a new ATP. So we don't have too much of this. Okay, and the creatine, okay, that is produced as a result of this metabolism, okay, can be reused or can be eliminated in the form of creatine, something that later we are going to use in the, to measure okay, or to assess the renal function. Glycolysis is the one that produces ATP, too little ATP, okay, uh, from glucose, breakdown of glucose, and the problem with this uh, glycolysis is that, that it, this produces lactic acid. Okay, lactic acid will produce a reduction in the intracellular pH and also will be released into the circulation and may produce acidosis, general acidosis in the body. And this doesn't need oxygen, okay? Simply break down glucose and produce this. And aerobic respiration is the one that occurs in mitochondria, produces lots of ATP and CO2 and water, okay? This CO2 is easily eliminated by the lungs, so it's, there is no risk of acidosis unless there is a respiratory problem. The problem with this uh, aerobic respiration is that this is very slow. It takes a lot of time uh, to break down the glucose or fatty acids to produce all of this uh, amount of energy. But ideally, okay, it uh, can provide energy forever while there is oxygen. Okay, and, of course, the nutrients could provide energy forever. And you have some examples of some exercises in which we use the different types of metabolism. Store ATP will be used first, the one that is available in the cytoplasm. Then we start using the ATP from the creatine phosphate system. So you break down this ATP that was stored and you make more ATP using creatine phosphate. So for the first 10, 15 seconds, depending on the training of the person, okay. We are going to use this energy. Then we use the glycolytic system because the other one is very slow. Okay? And that provides energy for 30 to 40 seconds. And we have to stop because when you have a reduction of the intracellular pH because of the accumulation of lactic acid, that will mess up with all of these uh, processes of removing calcium, will mess up with the cross-bridge cycle. There's going to be accumulation of phosphate that will uh, impair all of these uh, muscle contraction. And if we do some type of aerobic exercise, okay, we may be running for hours, of course. That is, doesn't apply to everyone. That applies to people who are trained. Okay, it doesn't matter how I do it. I, I won't be running for more than 10 minutes, maybe. Okay? Because I don't have the training for this. But with training, we can improve our performance. But for example, if someone who doesn't have training, simply walking, maybe, may occur for hours, they should have a good knees and good ankles. Okay. Also for this to be true, it's not just the muscles. 
So, one thing that is uh, important to know is the metabolism as it applies to the different types of skeletal muscle fibers. How we classify the skeletal muscle fibers depending on the velocity, okay, how fast they contract, and also depending on their major metabolic pathway that can be either oxidative or glycolytic. If we contract the muscles very fast, okay, they normally are gonna fatigue very easily. Okay, and then we have some fibers that contract more slowly. They are gonna be more resistant to fatigue. Okay, they are able to maintain more smooth, tetanic, maximal contractions for a longer time. So we classify them into fast or slow and into oxidative or glycolytic depending on the most important mechanism to make ATP. So we have the slow oxidative fibers or type 1. And when I, when I studied this the first time, I said, how do I remember this? And I said, well, now when you see the, the characteristic, how they look like, for example, the slow oxidative fibers, when you go to the supermarket to buy meat, beef, they're going to look, look very red, very nice, okay, very little white beans, and tends to be more expensive. Because when you buy them, it's softer. It's very soft. Okay, so I said, well, type one is the first quality meat. Okay, the expensive. That normally is associated to muscles that we use for maintain our posture. For example, paraspinal muscles. Even yeah. Okay? So if you use that association, you are gonna have it, this problem very easy. Slow oxidative type one, the most expensive meat. Okay, has a low myosin ATPase activity, that means contract slowly. We don't need to do very fast contraction with the, with the paraspinal muscle. What for? Simply. They are contracted. If you are standing eight hours in working in a supermarket, they simply need to maintain a contraction so you don't pull, you don't bend. Okay. So low ATPase activity, slow contraction, and very high oxidative capacity. They are eight hours or more maintaining the posture. So they have to be using mitochondria and they can produce too much lactic acid. So high oxidative capacity. Then we have a couple of other fibers that are type two divided into A and B. Okay, notice that the type two A are fast, but they are oxidative. Okay, they have a high myosin ATPase activity, means they contract fast, and also high oxidative capacity. And the type 2B are also fast, they contract fast, but they are glycolytic. They break down glycogen. Okay, so if you look at them, the type 1 is going to have lots of mitochondria and lots of myoglobin, which is very similar to hemoglobin. So they are going to be very red and very soft. Myoglobin makes them red. Mitochondria makes them soft. So associate that. 
Now, okay, type 2B, the other extreme, but they have glycogen. Glycogen, sugar, white. So they are going to be pale. Okay, not too much, not, no mitochondria, almost no mitochondria, almost no myoglobin, so it's a pale meat. Very hard to put them in the pressure cooker. It's very good, it makes like good stew. But I have to give them a lot of pressure to make them soft. Some people say that you put them in pineapple juice or, or some other citrus juice and and the ones, the, the, the type 2A, they are in between. They are fast, but they are glycolytic. They are oxidative, so they are pink. You say something. Red, pink, white. Okay? So the type 1 are the ones that predominate in the postural muscles. They are very resistant to fatigue. And the type 2, in general, are the ones that we use for rapid movement. Okay? The legs, for example, the arms, different things that we need to do faster movements. There you have the representation, the diagram, so we understand this difference in color. Slow twitch or type 1, very red. Fast twitch, or we use for sprinting, for example, jumping, very pale fibers. And we have some in between, I have like a mixture. And then you have a table, a explaining the differences, but it's exactly the same thing that we have here, okay? Here we have a piece of meat, maybe pork, I think. Have a red portion. Okay, at least I, when I'm choosing this type of meat, I always look at the meat that has a lot of these red. Okay, when you put it in the barbecue, you notice the difference between this uh, part and the then the table, so then we have more explanation, okay, we are uh, not going to use this part, of course, for an exam, okay, we are not going to be specialists in meat or how to, but if you like this, there is more information, okay, what uh, they do, for example, in the supermarkets, so the meat is always attractive, okay, how they put some it's not, not something bad, no? It's interesting. Now, how we develop muscle tension? And when you study this part, always make it with the idea that you are going to compare how we develop muscle tension in the skeletal muscle and in the heart. We are going to compare okay, how we increase the tension pores of the muscle, skeletal, and cardiac tissue. The tension that we develop depends on several things. Okay? The individual fibers, okay? the tension of each of them, but that will depend on the things that we studied before, the action potential frequency. If you stimulate more frequently, we are going to be able to summate all of these contractions and create a tetanus, which is a sustained contraction. Okay? Frequency of, of stimulation. Also depends on the fiber length. Okay, that will depend of, on the sarcomere length. This is a, in every muscle that we have, there is an idea 
length of the fiber that will permit you to produce the higher tension or the higher force. And this is simply explaining the detail. You want to lift a heavy object. Okay, there is, uh, I mean, some of your personal trainers or have studied physical therapy probably can explain this a lot better than, than I can do. But when you're going to lift a heavy object, if you try to say I have a dumbbell here that weighs 50 pounds, if I have to lift it from here, that's not the ideal length of the muscle fiber to be able to lift it. Maybe if I start in this position, it's going to be better. Okay? Simply that if we have, say the muscle is at rest and acting and myosin are here. Okay? Maybe that's the best position of the muscle okay, to develop the maximum force. If these fibers are to stretch, it's going to be a very low degree of interaction between actin and myosin, so the force that I will develop is not going to, maybe I can develop it, but it's not the maximum that I could develop in another position. And if they, if they are too, okay, uh, too close to each other, the same thing happens. When you try to create force, this is going to happen. Okay? The, the fibers are going to interact with the Z lines, and we can't develop any kind of force. Okay, so the length of the fiber is very important. Also the diameter. The larger fibers are gonna we are gonna are gonna develop more tension. And also depends on the presence or, or not of fatigue. Now, besides the individual fibers tension, okay, the muscle tension depends on how many of these fibers are active. Again, there is a process and a sequence of recruitment of different fibers. Okay, and for this we need to understand very well what is a motor unit. Okay, a motor unit is simply an alpha motor neuron, the neuron that goes from the anterior horn of the spinal cord to the muscle, and the, all the muscle fibers that are innervated by it. So we can recruit more or less motor fibers motor units, okay, to develop more or less force. You are exercising and you start with a dumbbell that is 10 pounds and then you change to one that is 20, another that is 30, you need to recruit more of these uh, motor units. And the motor units uh, can be small or can be large. For example, if we try to control the tongue when we are speaking, we need to do very perfect, accurate movements to place the tongue in different places inside the mouth, or when you are typing or writing, or if you are gonna remove something from an eye, you can do that with the knee or with the ankle. No, we have to do very accurate movements. So we need very small motor units. For example, one motor neuron innervating maybe 10, 20, the muscle fibers at the same time. So to move the tongue, we use huge amount of uh, neurons from the primary motor cortex. Okay, I'm sure you have seen many times before these motor homunculus that gives you a topographical representation of the sensory and motor parts of the, uh, the body as they are represented in the motor cortex and sensory cortex. If you remember, and you can look for it uh, online, 
the part of the motor cortex that we dedicate to the movement of the legs, it is a little bit here in the medial part of the, here of the motor cortex. It's tiny. Now, when you go to the lateral part, the inferior part, and you look at the area that is dedicated to the face, to the tongue, and to the hands, you're going to see that we dedicate a lot. Because each of these motor neurons is going to be connected to another in the spinal cord, and it's going to be connected to maybe 100 muscle fibers. Now, to control the thighs, the quadriceps, maybe you have one motor neuron that is innervating 10,000 the muscle fibers in the, in the quadriceps. So it's a large, a huge motor unit. So then we have this uh, summation that is very similar to what happens in, in the neurons, in the degraded potentials. Um, if you fire one action potential to a muscle fiber, there's going to be a pitch. Simulate, twitch, twitch. Okay. That is simply contraction relaxation. You increase the frequency, you have several twitches, you increase it more. Okay. When a muscle contracts and it's going to relax, you add a stimulation, you are going to have another contraction that is going to be summated to the previous one. Okay. So before the muscle is relaxing, another stimulation occurs. So we're going to summate the two. And this is what you have here. The summation of the stimulus, notice that the frequency is increasing from left to right. Okay, and there is a moment when the stimulation is so frequent that the muscle contracts and there is no time to relax. Another contraction, another contraction, another contraction, and that is what we call tetanus. But permits a sustained contraction of a muscle. And we know you have this explanation that I was trying to give you, okay, that is uh, about the ideal okay, position between the acting and myosin to be able to develop the greater tension. Okay, if you put them very close together, we can't develop uh, any tension at all. And if they are too far away, we develop some tension, but not the maximum that the muscle is able to and well, the recruitment, which is uh, finally what permits us to develop the maximal tension of a specific muscle, okay, depends on the summation okay, of different motor units, the recruitment, addition of different motor units, okay, something that we can see in the entire muscle level, not in that specific muscle fiber. And it's the main, the most important mechanism that we have to increase tension. And we simply stimulate a greater proportion of motor units to contract simultaneously. Think in the person trying to lift different weights of dumbbells or any other object. And they can be activated in different ways simultaneously or asynchronously. Simply, if we are doing an exercise, for example, during a long time, we may activate some motor units and then other motor units, so these ones, the first ones, take a break. Okay, and then like alternating between them. That will help to prevent fatigue. And that's what uh, one of the things that, for example, training guarantees. 
Okay, if you, if you have played guitar any time, you know that when you start, you get very tired immediately. In time, with the training, you get less and less and less and less tired, and then there's a moment when you can be playing two hours without feeling any kind of pain, any kind of type of fatigue. The sports, the same. So, first, we recruit okay, some motor fibers, then we recruit others, then we recruit others. Notice that there is another slow oxidative, fast oxidative, fast glycolytic, which are recruited uh, the last. But we, don't, we want to prevent fatigue above all. Okay, then you have a video that explains more about this. But these are simply some small details that are important. Most skeletal muscles contain the three types of fibers. Each fascicle contains more than one motor unit, and each motor unit has only one type of muscle fiber. Okay, each motor unit has more, has only one type of muscle fiber, but each fascicle may contain different uh, type of motor unit with different types of fibers. These are uh, small, large motor units, and you have the video there. Yeah, we're going to stop here. So, questions? We are planning when we are going to be having an exam. Okay, it's going to be together anatomy and theory. Okay, you're going to see, I think it's already in there. Yeah, it's already there. I'm going to try to make a practice quiz or something to hold it so you can... Okay. Yeah, 25 and 25 questions.